you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we come to the end of his prologue today, verses 14 down through 18. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, may your spirit work today. These truths are transformative, but we are powerless to enact transformation in ourselves or in others. We need you. Show us Jesus incarnate, full of grace and truth, the things that we desperately need. Lord, receive glory and honor in this time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis, quote, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation, end quote. He goes on in this way. There is no question in Christianity of arbitrary interferences just scattered about. It relates not a series of disconnected raids on nature, but the various steps of a strategically coherent invasion, an invasion which intends complete conquest and occupation. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. All discussion of them in isolation from it is futile, end quote. That's from his book on miracles. I commend it to you. It's a good one. But he says the central miracle in all of Christianity is the incarnation of Christ. That God would take on flesh. It's this miracle that is before us today. The, the grand miracle. God made man. John, in brief statements as he sums up his introduction, is taking us to this overlook. This vista where he's again showing us kind of back where he started. This eternally existent word. And there never was a time when this word was not. And this word was always turned toward God. And this word was in fact God. Staggering truth that defies not only uh, everything that we would understand as natural but it's a very disruptive truth that God would become man. He has claim on our lives. He has done great things. 
In this word, we see that light and life are breaking into our world of darkness. The darkness is going to push back against it. But the darkness is not going to win. Again, that's a summary statement of everything that we're going to read in John. Last week, we heard about this theme of witness in the ministry of John the Baptist. The eternal Logos is breaking in, and this light is is going out by witnesses to the reality of that. We also saw the results of this light going out. People are being reborn as children of God. This is a work of God's grace. This is not our own doing. This is God's grace at work. And here again we see themes unfolding that are going to unfold across the pages of John. Today as we look at the prologue of the end of the prologue, we refocus on the identity of who is this Logos. So far he's kept us in suspense. I know we've had three, this is the third sermon, two other sermons on this text and we talk about Jesus throughout but so far he's just been building suspense. You have this Logos. You have this one who is the Word. Who is he? He's going to break that suspense today. Trying in the backdrop of this text is a very old question in the Bible and a question I believe a lot of us today in the modern world uh, reckon with goes something like this have I gone too far to be forgiven have I been too bad is my life too much of a wreck for God to do anything about it are we too messy are we too sinful for God to come near and do something about it Our text this morning combines two images, glory and a tabernacle, that take us back to this very question in the Exodus. The image of a tabernacle and glory coming together should be a very recognizable image to anybody who's ever read their Bible. It was central to the people of God. You remember the story, right? Out of Egypt to Sinai, thunder, lightning, God revealing himself on the mountain, the giving of the law. Do you remember that? The people said, everything you say, we're going to do it. They made a a good bargain, right? Because they they could keep it. No, uh, Moses wasn't even down the mountain yet. and They defied God and worshipped an idol made with their own hands. Is that too bad for God to do anything about? Is that the end of the story? No, because right after that, God is so gracious. He comes to them. The tabernacle is erected in their midst and the glory of God dwells with them. God tabernacled with them. He's saying even way back there, no, I'm not going to leave you. You're not hopeless. So we see this sanctuary and the people of God dwelling there and God leading and protecting His people, taking them home to be with Him. Even after incredible failure, God came in His presence, in His tabernacle, and dwelt with His people. 
God is not done with sinners. That's what the incarnation is about. He's not done with sinners. If you've had that thought, have I gone too far? This passage, this text is for you. It's an answer from the Word of God. We're going to look at glory in this way. Glory that is seen in verse 14. Glory that is heard in verse 15. And the results of glory in 16 through 18. Glory that is seen. Glory that is heard. And the results of that glory. First, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's like resolving uh, something that's discordant. This brings resolve. This eternal Word. Ever existing. Before anything else was made. In fact, this eternal Word was the agent Himself of creation. He spoke all things into existence. Nothing was made without Him. That God became flesh. There may not be anything more profound ever written. That the eternal God would condescend taking on human flesh. Calvin says he intended to show to what a mean and despicable condition the Son of God on our account descended from the height of His heavenly glory. Mean and despised, lowly condition. Remember, we have to remember all of this. We have to load this thought with it as grand as John was loading it. This, as big as it, as it possibly gets, this is God. Taken on human flesh. It's a staggering reality. The eternal Logos became a real infant who cried and needed to be changed. The eternal Word, the ever existing Word who spoke all things into existence by the Word of His power could get hungry and thirsty. He could get hot and tired. The one who by the word of his power spoke all things into existence subjected himself to fallen man and sometimes he would need a nap. He would need to get away and go pray. The eternal Logos Eternally with his Father, born into this world, felt joy and pain and sorrow and anger. Not only did the Word become flesh, but John says this, the Word dwelt among us, showing us his glory. That's where the, those two things coming together should throw us all the way back because that word dwelt is literally he pitched his tent he tabernacled here he is the tabernacle in Jesus the, the glory of the tabernacle is perfected 
John is saying, here's the real thing. The glory of the tabernacle and the temple are just types and shadows. They're just arrows pointing to the real thing. And the real thing is here. And the real thing is Jesus in flesh. This glory is seen. We might well ask, seen by who? Certainly by John and the apostles. He makes allusion to this in his epistle. We read, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard and that which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. And he's saying, that's us. That's my eyes. That's my ears. That's my hands. But here, I think in this prologue, I think he's talking about us. We have seen his glory. He makes no specific mention of himself. He's saying we have seen his glory. I think that's a good way to to maybe even view what a Christian is. Someone who sees by faith the, the glory of God in Christ. You see him for who he is. Everyone else may deny, but with hearts of faith, we look at Jesus and say, yes, the very Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We remember that's the goal of his writing. He's writing to evangelize us. He's writing an evangelistic missive. These were written that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we may have life in Him. In John, we see the glory of God on display in all the life of Christ. The words of Jesus are glorious. His actions are glorious. What He accomplishes in righteousness, death, Burial, resurrection is utterly glorious. Really, there's the first application is do we behold him? Do we see that glory? The purpose of the Gospel of John is so that we could behold all of this glory full of grace and truth. We're meant to see that Christ is preeminent. The glory of Christ is also here unique. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. The glory of Christ is the glory of God. This is going to unfold across John's Gospel when we read the only begotten Son, we read of this truth. Jesus radiates the glory of God. This glory is unlike others. It's full of grace and truth. In some senses, the whole gospel of John and all of our lives' stories as well are stories of glory. Weight. Importance. John's gospel will reveal this reality that not all glory is static. All glory belongs to Christ, and yet people steal glory for themselves. We like to hoard it up.
The question hanging over those who encounter Jesus is, will I bow the knee and give you glory, recognizing who you really are, or am I more important than than that? Not bow the knee. Reject. Again, I think the same is true of our lives. I think our lives are about competing glories. Who are we living for? Who is at the center? We'll see this again and again. Whose purpose is this life about? What does overflowing glory look like? John tells us that this overflowing glory is full of grace and truth. This is the fount of glory that we need. Here it is in Christ. We'll see it again on display time and time again in this gospel. What will we do with this this kind of glory? Again, it's going to be utterly repulsive to some. That God would come into the world as a person, demand something of us, And sometimes that's offensive and people push back against this notion. Some people see the glory of Christ as a threat to them. What are you and I going to do with the glory of Christ? As we see that He is revealed in His person, we're going to submit to His glory. Are we going to do everything in this life seeking our own? So first is glory that is seen, but that's not all that is revealed here. Next, glory that is heard. John bore witness about him, verse 15, and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John interjects in the flow of his thought the reality that this glory is not just seen, but it's also heard. It's also going to be announced. He he gives a tiny little example, a little clue about evangelism in his gospel here. John the Baptist is also an evangelist, a witness. Here this account is a reversal of what is expected in this society. A witness or a testimony is more credible from the greatest, the oldest, to the youngest. Think here Abraham and Isaac, Elijah, Elisha, Moses and Joshua, David and Solomon, so forth and so on. The oldest is the witness. The oldest has the most credibility and John says, not with Jesus. He's greater than me. John in compact form claims three things about Jesus and John the Baptist. One, John was first on the scene. John the Baptist was born first. He was born before Jesus. Second, Jesus ranks higher before John. And third, this is crazy, Jesus existed before John. This is a witness to the deity of Christ. It is saying no matter how you view Christ, you have to see that He existed forever. He is preeminent. Jesus Christ is first. He's first.
He's taking us to this conclusion. He's showing us the preeminence of Christ. Even even though he was born later, there's no one greater than Jesus. Paul picks up on the preeminence of Christ. I love it in Colossians 1. And he, that is Jesus, is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, his church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ is first. The glory of Christ taking on human flesh, yet losing none of the divine, none of it. He takes on human flesh, remaining fully divine, one person, two natures. Perfect substitute. He really was a man. And yet fully divine. The one who brings peace. Reconciling God and man. This is the story of Advent. This is Isaiah's announcement. Of this wonderful God. Ending all war. Establishing peace forever. This is that story. Breaking into the world. Last week we were encouraged to share this as witnesses, which we continue to be of Christ on earth. Share words, the truth of the gospel. Here John is telling us what that may sound like. It may sound like telling, talking about, speaking about the glory of Christ. You're going to see across John, it's going to be an interesting thing, and we'll point it out along the way, how evangelism was done. And do you know how it was being done when Jesus was on earth? It's very simple. Hey, come, come meet him. Come meet him. Hey, there's this Jesus over here who, who's told me everything I ever did, and, and he didn't reject me. That's the evangelistic method in John. It's meet Jesus. See him. Hear him. He's glorious. You see it in the curiosity of Nicodemus. Who even though he makes the appointment late at night, he wants to meet him. Isn't that a a great evangelistic strategy? Hey, come meet meet Jesus. Here, Here he is. To talk about his glory. Do we speak of the glory of Christ? Do we ever mention Jesus to one another? Do we get excited when someone else starts speaking about the glory of Christ and the greatness of his gospel? We saying, O tell of his might, O sing of his grace, whose robe is the light, whose canopy space. Real quick, real short, tell of his might. Sing of his grace. And then boom, it just backs out. He's the maker of everything. That's pretty good evangelism. Lastly, we have the results of this glory that is seen and this glory that John announces. We have this producing results for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses Grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. You got to love that. Grace upon grace. The Christian community, as many as have received him, receive grace from the fullness of Christ. Grace for sinners. Now we're getting to the core of what John is getting after in his missive. He knows what we need. He knows what we need. He knows what sin has done to the world. Death and destruction lay waste. And Christ breaks in with grace. He says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He sets up this comparison. He's not saying that the law is bad or evil or false. Rather, it doesn't have the power to save. The law was pointing us ahead to something, someone much greater. The law came through Moses. Through Moses, we know that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We know that just like Israel, we wouldn't make it two steps away from Sinai without defying God and idolatry. We can never disparage them. That's us. We needed something greater. I love this quote by A.W. Pink. Listen, quote, Law manifested what is in man, sin. Grace manifests what is in God, love. Law demanded righteousness from men. Grace brings righteousness to men. Law sentences a living man to death. Grace brings a dead man to life. Law speaks of what men must do for God. Grace tells of what Christ has done for them. End quote. John is saying Moses was good, but not good enough. You needed more. And in Christ, you have it in full. Grace is the beauty of Christ on display in the lives of sinners. As sinners, we justly deserve wrath. In union with Christ, we get righteousness. We justly deserve His displeasure, and yet in grace, because of the grace of Christ, we get glorious resurrection to be with Him forever. Grace is fundamental for everything in the Christian life. Grace abounds not just to save us, but to carry us through this life. If you draw breath today, it is because of God's grace. Grace is available to the sufferer. Grace abounds to the brokenhearted sinner. Grace overflows to those who are in the throes of anxiety and depression. Grace upon grace. Grace is available in Christ to those who are weary, tired, and brokenhearted. Grace is available for you today, right now. Sinner. Because of Christ, you are offered grace. Jesus came in the fullness of God and man with grace piled on top of grace. 
Again, this whole book is going to contrast the, the glory, uh, the grace of God in Christ and the achievements of the, and the glory of men and we want our own way. We want to prove that we're good enough and so we have a hard time with this reality that we, we would receive grace freely. We still push back against that notion. That's why we hammer it here at this church. The gospel is what we need. And you can't negotiate this. The only thing that we're bringing to the table is our sin and death and need. And into that, the word became flesh. We must have grace. We will only stand before God with a declared righteousness because of Christ, and that is grace. Last result of glory is that, that in Christ, the glory of God is revealed to the earth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He's ending where he began. You see the beauty of even these 18 verses? Just lyrically, they're gorgeous. He begins as big as it possibly gets, and he's ending with as big as it possibly gets. The only God. The invisible God. Has been made known. The last four verses in Greek are one verse, and you may know it. It's where we get our word exegesis. Jesus has exegeted the Father to the world. It literally means to unfold, to narrate, to translate, to reveal. Jesus has exegeted God to the world. It's longing to see Jesus, this beatific vision of His glory, runs throughout John. And we remember it throughout our Bibles. Abraham encountering God in the smoking pot and the flaming torch. Moses and the elders getting a glimpse under the sapphire floor of the throne room. Moses encountering God in the burning bush, getting a glimpse of the back of God when he was spared through God's hand in the cleft of the rock. David longing to be in the presence of God always. Isaiah seeing this vision of God shrouded in smoke in a massive throne room that made him think he was going to die. Elijah hearing a still tiny voice. And throughout, none of those revelations are full. None of them fully reveal. None of them fully narrate or translate God until Christ. All those glimpses pointing here. What is God like? Look with the eyes of faith to see Jesus. What does God sound like? Listen to the words that Jesus will speak. The gospel itself reveals the Father to us, the life, death, and resurrection an ascension of Christ into heaven, Him seated on the throne, all of this making God known to the world. John is again at the conclusion of this um, introduction 
He's pointing us the way in the gospel. If we want to know God, glimpse God, hear Him, keep reading. Because that's exactly what the life of Christ is doing. Jesus is revealing the Father. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. These truths are too great for us. But would you sink them deep into our hearts? Pointing us again and again to a glory that is full of grace and truth. That's exactly what we need. Shape us. Grow us as we read your word. May we be changed by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.